One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I have a conversation with John Vervecki, who's an award-winning lecturer at the University of Toronto in the departments of psychology, cognitive science, and Buddhist psychology. He is the first author of the book Zombies in Western Culture, a 21st Century Crisis, which integrates psychology and cognitive science to address the meaning crisis in Western society. His ongoing YouTube lecture series, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, has reached over 100,000 views on YouTube so far. In our conversation, we discuss what makes an experience meaningful and how practices like meditation, yoga, and shamanism open us to receive insight and create connections that make life more meaningful. If you'd like to support this podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes, share it with your friends, or become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. Now, my conversation with John Vervecki on the medicine path. How's, how's it going? Good, good, good. Yeah, are you busy these days? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> extremely busy these days. I mean, I mean, it's March at the university, which is like crunch time extraordinaire. I've got all kinds of presentations for conferences, experiments running, and then I'm doing the video series and just a ton of interview and podcasts. So, yeah, it's 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 crazy busy right now. Very very busy. Is this uh, like a new thing for you, this increased exposure and interest in your work? Because I've, you know, I've been watching your lecture series on YouTube mm-hmm. and I've seen those numbers go up and up. 
Yeah. Uh, and is that something new for you or is that something you've done in the past? Um, well, I mean, I, I had put uh, courses on YouTube before and, and they got sort of, you know, interest in, in you know, the thousands kind of thing, uh, largely students and, you know, uh, sort of the, the COGSI uh, community. But a lot of my students came to me and said, you should do much better quality, much more comprehensive argument and put it in a format that's going to be accessible to a larger lay audience. And so I put the video series together and that just started 10 weeks ago. And since then, there's just been an explosion of interest. Yeah. One of the things I was wondering, um, you know, I find it just uh, seems very generous to me. You know, I'm someone that never went to university. So to have access to that kind of learning experience (laughs) is, is amazing. And I was wondering, like, if you got any blowback from the university or even the students who have paid a lot of money for that education? Uh, No, I mean, I think it's fair to say um, that what the students are getting in the class is taking place at a, at a, at a deeper level. Um, I mean, for example, the episodes are one hour, whereas when I'm lecturing, it's three hours, right? Mm-hmm. And there's direct presentation, uh, direct dialogue, uh, you know, that they can ask and have questions answered. They can debate me directly. They get to write essays and get critical feedback. They get to come to office hours. So I don't think they feel underprivileged in that way. Um, I think instead, I, sh- I would, like I said, I, I, they have come to me and many of them, both, uh, you know, uh, just in after class. And then a group of them specifically said, look, I want to donate my time. We, I'm going to put together a video team for videotaping and editing you. I'm going to help you manage your Twitter. I'm going to help you manage. Like, this is all students mm. who have come and said, look, we really believe in what you're doing and your, your arguments and your ideas. We want more people uh, to see them. Uh, and so I take that um, as evidence that they are feeling uh, rather than being slighted in some way, that they're they're getting to contribute and participate in the generation of something uh, that they find valuable. Yeah, great. Um, so the the current lecture series that you're putting out online is concerning what you describe as a crisis of meaning. Yes, yes. And watching it, it got me thinking about this idea of meaning and experiences that we find meaningful and having a meaningful life. And I don't think it's something that I've ever looked into for myself before, you know, like what is it that makes a particular experience meaningful? Yeah. Uh, You know, what is it that makes life meaningful? And like to really look at what are the components of an experience that feels meaningful to us. And mm-hmm. I thought that, I thought that'd be a great place to start is just sure. try to get a sense of what is meaning and what makes something meaningful. <laughs> well, uh, so, you know, <laughs> I mean, that, that in one sense, that's what the, f- the 50 hours of the series are all trying to answer. So um, I hope your listeners will take it into, be charitable in my answer that I'm trying to take a very long and complicated argument and put it in a, in a respectful fashion to address your question. I mean, and just one thing about that, I, I think the and, and what the series makes clear is there's two there's two aspects to this question. There's a historical cultural aspect, right? There's a, our, our culture has a history that has given us a grammar ways of thinking about what makes something meaningful. And that has to be taken into account in any in answer. And then there is 
the scientific investigation, which investigates the more universal processes, sort of the structural, functional organization of uh, you know cognitive and conscious uh, processes, and how those contribute to meaning. Uh, and uh, they are inextricably uh, intertwined. So I, I'm going to answer. I, the, I can't really answer the cultural historical one. I would point your, like I said, your listeners to. The, the, the 10 episodes that are have unfolded so far and are unfolding, I think it has a lot to do with things that happened in the Axial Revolution and whatnot. So I'll just focus in on the scientific side right now. And so there's growing research, um, and I'm uh, doing some um, really important work uh, with, uh, uh, with a group of students. Um, um, we're going to uh, we're, uh, we're going to be uh, presenting a paper together at um, APA, uh, and then we're going to be writing up, just canvassing all of the current psychological theories of on meaning, what makes life meaningful. There's also important philosophical arguments uh, by people like Susan Wolf and others, and then there's my own work. And so I'm going to I'm I, okay, I want I, I'm trying to draw all of that together, but. Mm. I would argue that the core uh, of what we're talking about when we're making a process meaningful is how we're ultimately doing three things in an integrated fashion. How we're making pieces of information relevant to us by making pieces of information relevant to each other. And then once we can do that, we can make what we're doing relevant to the world and relevant to other people. So this idea of, of making things relevant, I, I think, is the, the is the key thing. And, and, and why that's so important, and I have published arguments and presentations on this, is this ability to zero in on relevant information and find it salient and obvious so that the world becomes a coherent arena for your action and you model yourself as a coherent agent for acting in the arena, and they're appropriate, and they fit, and they belong together. I think that's the core thing. Now, when that get when that gets taken up into sort of the structuring of people's lives, right? The, the narrative structuring, the right, the interactional structuring. It sort of plays out in three important ways. Um, it plays out, and, and there's there's increasing experimental evidence for this that people, when people have a sense of coherence, when there's sort of a, a, a structured intelligibility, like I just laid out, of the world and of themselves, if you just induce that in people experimentally, just by showing them meaningful scenes, they will start to rate their lives as more meaningful, just because you're introducing more coherence into their processing, because they're getting that sense of connectedness to the world, right? Mm -hmm. People also, uh, it also plays out, right, in the idea that we care for others, we can, we are, we, right, we, and we, and this is, I think, part of uh, Susan Wolf's idea that to, to find our lives meaningful is to believe that we're connected to something that has a value independent of our valuing it. It's not, there's some things I value just because I like them, right? But there's some things I try to say, and of course this has philosophical difficulties associated with it, but I say, I like it because it's a good thing. I care about it, right? I, I, you know, I, I, I would want that thing to survive and go on even if I weren't here, like my children, for example, my partner, my friends, right? And, all, and also aspects of the world, works of art, aspects of the natural environment. Like, I don't want anybody destroying the Grand Canyon ever, right? Things like that. Hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, we want, we need to care about things that have a value independent. And we also need to know that people care for us as persons, not just as, you know, useful cogs in a machine or having a use value. There, there, there's that. And all of that has to fit together so that there's a kind of a narrative coherence, right? So that we have a, a we, 
And, and the way the agent and the arena fit together, like I said, is and, and, and there's clear evidence that this multiplies. It's not sort of natural to us, right? That we are a story and the world is a story and those two stories fit together very well. And when we have all of those, if we have that sort of narrative order of a story within story, it gives us a sense of purpose. If we have that sort of caring about things that have a value beyond us so that we can transcend ourselves, that's kind of a normative order, right? And then when, when everything fits together coherently, intelligibly, that's, 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 that's a nomological order. And Chris Master Pietro and Philip Mistovic and I talked about those three orders in the zombie book and that how the zombies are a mythology about how all those orders are collapsing for historical reasons. And we're only now starting to get the scientific answer that may allow us to restore them from a scientific uh, point of view. Now, of course, there's important experiences that really uh, enhance that connectedness that I'm talking about. That The flow experience really intensifies that agent arena connectedness, that salience of things and, and that, that deep enmeshment, right? And so, of course, when if people have more flow experiences, rate, they rate their lives better, right? Uh, and also, I, I'm now currently arguing, oh, well, sorry, not just me. There's evidence from the Griffiths Lab and other that if you have more mystical experiences, you rate, you rate your life as more meaningful. We've just done a huge MTurk experiment in which uh, if you've had mystical experiences, that is predictively correlated with how meaningful you find your life. And I'm trying to understand what's the cognitive machinery going on in these mystical and awakening experiences that makes people rate their lives as more meaningful because they've had them. And we know that there's real changes. Yaden has all this research showing that people's lives do sort of get better along many measures that they care about after these experiences. And we do know, again, from the Griffiths Lab, that after having said mystical experiences, people ex actually have a fundamental change in their personality structure. The personality trait of openness, and though these traits are supposed to be stable, right? The personality trait of openness actually goes up after these experiments. And see, after longitudinal investigation, it still remains uh, at an increased level. So there's real changes happening in people at the level of their personality and in their lives that seem to support their claims that their lives are getting better and they are fundamentally changed and connected to the world in a different way. Mm. Sorry, that, that was supposed to be short. <laughs> Sorry. That's good. I, I know from your lecture series that once you get going, it's, it's like a, a train going full steam. Um, but what you're saying, like, you know, when I was thinking about, you know, what makes something meaningful in my life, I was thinking of these qualities that I associate with those meaningful experiences. And the ones I came up with were presence, mm -hmm. uh, a sense of openness yep. and um, curiosity. And then when I, when I have those qualities, no matter what I'm engaging in, I, I do feel that interconnectedness. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. when I, when I'm holding those qualities with another person, I feel it's been a meaningful interaction. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And there is that uh, element of authentic connection, um, right, right. whether that's in nature or in a conversation um, or uh, even when I'm doing my yoga practice, I was trying to think, like, why does my yoga practice feel so meaningful to me? Yeah, yeah. Even if I'm not bringing in, you know, a bunch of ideas. And, no, you don't need the ideas. And, yeah, and chanting to a deity or anything, but just the, the act of connecting with my breath and body just... Mm -hmm feels inherently meaningful without you know me being able to pinpoint exactly what it is about that experience but the only thing i could come up with was just feeling connected and present and curious so the connectedness is definitely what i've been talking to you about right that those the, that deep connectedness that that uh, i call it 
religio. I mean, it's one, it's a potential uh, etymological root for religion. It means binding, connected. And it's what this, remember what the relevance realization is doing, right? It's, it's not cold calculation. It's, it's how you're choosing what to pay attention to. And you talk about presence. It's what's standing out for you as salient. What, what is generating affordances for you? So the, this is presenting itself to me as a glass, and, and I am fitting myself to it. There's an affordance of graspability. So it, it, is, it, is, it is present to me in an important way. Dan Chiappi and I are actually going through a lot of the work on this. I just read a wonderful article um, on, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I can't remember the author's name and she deserves to be remembered, right? Uh, but it's called Seeing Like a Rover and it's talking about the scientists who are managing the rover on Mars. And what's really interesting is that like, the kind, they, they don't just talk about it or think about it. They, they, like, they try to embody, they try and enact, right? So they'll do things like, they'll put their hands up like this is where the cameras are and they'll move around and, 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 they, and they say, we will, we will, we, not, not the rover, we will hit like a stone here. And, the, and there's, there's these processes, right? And you can see how those are taken up in things like the flow experience, because in flow, people feel this tremendous at one and they feel the world as vividly present. It's super salient. It's standing out to them. I think, and this will pick up on the curiosity and openness that you're pointing to, I've argued, and so has, I believe, uh, I think there's a similar argument to Newberg. I think that's what's going on in Flow, and I published on this with uh, uh, Leo Ferraro and Arian Harabennett uh, last year in the Oxford Handbook of Spontaneous Thought. We think Flow is a, is a chain of insights. Like, when you know when you have an insight, like you've been trying to solve a problem and you realize you've misframed the problem, you, aha! And you get that opening up and you get that flash, that moment of super salience. That's where we put a light bulb over people's head. And you get this opening and this aha, and there's a sense of curiosity and exploration, right? And if you chain a bunch of those together, you get the flow experience. And I think you're getting into something like the flow experience. Why that's relevant to what I'm talking about is what you're doing in insight is your make your what you're 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 re you're re um you're recognizing, I'm playing on the word recognizing, you're recognizing what you find relevant and salient. And you're finding that, you know, that really good fittedness and connectedness to the problem. And so that's the curiosity and the openness. And I think when you chain a bunch of those together, you get flow. And then I think when you flow um, for sort of uh, your, that, those broad scale properties of coherence, you know, and connectedness to the world at large, you can get the mystical experiences. So I agree with you. I think that's why, uh, you know, presence and openness and curiosity are phenomenological markers of when we feel these experiences as meaningful. I think there's one other element for you. Um, I think you feel that the, the, what you're engaged in or, or, or the practice you're engaged in is valuable, like it'd be valuable to other people and it has a value independent just that. It's not just an idiosyncratic preference on your part. You're connecting to a larger tradition, a larger framework that right has an independent value to it. Yeah, that, that's a really good point because, you know, it's, it's like what brought me to the yoga practice in the first place was um, finding something that allowed me to take care of my mental and physical health which helped me be a better, more present, open, loving husband to my right. wi wife yeah. and family and friends. So yeah, it does have that um, larger purpose, which mm -hmm. is something that Viktor Frankl points to. He talks about a meaningful life being a life where you're engaged in um, a, a purpose and responsibility for something greater than yourself. Yeah. 
Yeah, and Susan Wolf in her excellent book, Meaning in Life and Why It, Why it Matters, argues, she, she, she has two main arguments. She has one argument that needs to be, I think, made, paid more attention to. She's got very good arguments that you can't reduce a meaningful life to a moral life, right? So that, uh, or, or an aesthetically sort of pleasing life. These, it's, a, it's an independent value. You could lead a very moral life um, and it could be significantly less meaningful than another, peop- another person. Now, it's, she's not saying that you could have a fantastically meaningful life and be a monster, a moral monster. What she's saying is uh, leading a moral life is not sufficient to having a meaningful life. There's more to it. And then what she argues that more to itness is exactly what you're talking about, that we feel connected to something. She, she puts it this way, that we have a subjective, we have a subjective attraction, a powerful subjective attraction to something that is objectively attractive. And so it's you, you're, you, you're really drawn to something that tra- make, affords you to transcend yourself and to connect to something, to other people, to other contexts, to other aspects of reality, right, that are independently valuable. Mm. Yeah, this is uh, reminding me of how you start the whole lecture series. It's like kind of starting at the beginning of humanity and the first, yeah. the first practices that we engaged in to, uh, to find meaning, which is in shamanism. Yes. Like the pre-religious practices of, of yep, humanity. Yep. And can you speak a little bit about that and why you do focus on shamanism and like what it is what are the common elements in shamanism that are meaning making? Yeah. And I mean, I, 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 I couldn't get into everything that I wanted to, which, um, uh, so many people, not all researchers, of course, think that, you know, th- that there, that there's a fundamental change in the upper Paleolithic transition. Now, some people have presented it, I think in a, incorrectly with this sort of idea of a big bang, that there's nothing before around, you know, 60,000 to 40,000 BC. And then all of a sudden there's all of this. There are, there's clear precursors in, uh, in Africa. But what you see in the upper Paleolithic transition, you see a massive increase in the sophistication of the technology that's being used, many different tools, uh, projectile weapons. There's some evidence now that the Neanderthals might have been able to throw their spears, but they're nothing compared to the very thin bone tip spears and the spear throwers that, and eventually the bow and arrows that human beings are developing. So you've got all these projectile weapons, you have calendars, uh, you have innate jewelry, you know, complex uh, jewelry being made. Again, there might be some Neanderthals that are doing something very crudely similar. Um, And you also have uh, music, clear evidence for music, uh, overwhelming evidence for representational art, pictures of animals, uh, carvings. And so you got this massive ex- explosion and it doesn't seem to be biologically driven. I mean, this is a little bit contentious because of course, soft tissue doesn't store in the fossil record, but we don't have any evidence for any sort of change in the brain size or organization. And so many people, myself included, think that we're not talking about a hardware change, we're talking about a software change. We're talking about the way the brain was being utilized and, and, and made use of rather than a biological change. And I think this is supported by the, the, by the really fantastic work of Michael Anderson and his, his ideas of cognitive excitation and circuit reuse, that the brain evolves often by taking circuits that have evolved for one purpose and then exacting them and using them for another. Just to give your viewers a quick understanding of what excitation is, my tongue originally evolved for tasting poison and moving food around in my mouth. And it just happens for evolutionary reasons to be in my air tract. So what that means is I can exact that for speech, 
right? Because I have a, I have this highly sensitive, very flexible muscle that can interrupt airflow. So evolution doesn't have to create a speaking machine out of scratch. It can exact this machine for other pur- that originally evolved for other purposes. And your brain is constantly doing that circuit reuse and exaptation, both across species and within individuals. And so I think it's highly likely that what we're seeing is sort of an exaptive software change. And so other people, uh, uh, you know, M- Matt Rosano, uh, David Lewis Williams, uh, Winkleman, many people are arguing, they think that what it is is a set of psychotechnologies um, that involved alt- creating altered states of consciousness. And for reasons that if your viewers want to see, I argue for in the 10th uh, video, the one that's out right now, mm-hmm. there's the connections between altering your state of consciousness and facilitating insight, facilitating what you find relevant or salient, opening up cognitive flexibility, and especially uh, probably engendering something like the flow state because current shamanic practice clearly induces people into the flow state by chanting, um, other disruptive strategies, right? Uh, you know, mindful strategies. A- and you see in, in, the, in shamanic practice, you see the, the integration of two things that we've sort of separated, but you, they can come together. These are mindfulness practices like meditation and contemplation. And these are, you know, ritual practices that work in, in uh, let, let me put it another way, sort of more like hypnotic practices that work through powers of suggestion. And in ritual, you can actually see them coming together. Uh, like, for example, when you're, when you're teaching meditation, you're teaching people mindfulness, but you, t- you speak to them in a pattern. Norman Farr pointed this out. It's very much like hypnotic induction. Mm-hmm. And when, I, when I'm doing Tai Chi, I'm obviously practicing mindfulness, but I'm doing a highly ritualized, repetitive, inductive practice. And so shamanism brings you know sort of hypnosis and meditative stuff together leo and i published an article in this on a book on hypnosis and mindfulness in 2016 and so shamanism and shamanistic ritual is altering consciousness altering what you find relevant or salient it's right it's 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 it is inducing the 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 flow state it's bringing together the these to you know, nascent psychotechnologies, and all of these things really increase, um, you know, your 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 capacities for insight, your capacities for uh, picking up on other animals, uh, other people's mental states, for inducing placebo effect in other human beings, and that should be really people should understand. People treat the placebo effect as something to be thrown away and ignored. If I can reliably induce the placebo effect in you, that's like that's forty percent of all current pharmacological medicine, right? And so, if that's pretty good healthcare, right, in, 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 in the upper Paleolithic period, if I can do that. So, if you've got a shaman that can do all this transformation right? Then, you know, they're going to help you solve your social problems. They're going to help you find your animals. They're going to lead to insightful social and technological innovations. They're going to help heal you when you're sick. I mean, this is just huge, which is why shamanism tends to be, well, at least Michael Winkleman, Matt Rosano, and others argue it's a universal. And what seems to happen, right, around this time, it, it, the, all this artistic stuff seems to indicate the presence of much more metaphorical thought, and metaphorical thought is a clear instance, I think, of a, a, an increased capacity for insight. Because when I'm making a metaphor, I'm trying to get you to alter or restructure how you see things so that you have an insight into them you, you didn't have before. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's so I think, you know, what you see in shamanism is a, is a systematic set of psychotechnologies 
for altering states of consciousness and cognition that were enormously adaptive and therefore got written into our fundamental grammar of you know how we make meaning as human beings so we we would now think I mean, Nietzsche famously said, you know, a life without mu- life without music would be a mistake. We would think of a life bereft of, you know, all these things invented in the sh- in the upper Paleolithic transition, like art and music and, you know, these really intricate athletic projectile, you know, forms of interaction with like if we if I took that out of your life, you'd think your life was pretty meaningless in, in important ways. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Um when you're talking about shamanism, uh, one of the elements that I'm thinking of is the the experience of the shamanic journey, the the visionary yeah, journey, yeah. which is very much to me my experience of it is like a uh, a waking dream state where yeah, very much like a- lucid dreaming, yeah, yeah, like where aspects of my subconscious are being presented to me as images. And um, I'm able to interact with them, which is mm-hmm. much like a lucid dream. Mm-hmm. And then in that, in decoding those images and, and symbols, finding uh, finding the insight, mm-hmm. getting, getting those aha moments. But it's, yeah. what is it about the the metaphor that helps us find the meaning when we're, like, when we're, able, we're, we're looking at a problem directly... Mm-hmm. We're maybe not able to see that, but taking having that presented it to us as an image or a symbol allows us to see it in a different way and make those connections. I think it's it's both that. I mean, I think it's important uh, to pay attention to both your cognitive state and your state of consciousness, right? So typically, what's blinding us in insight problems, you know. So there's a man, he lives in a city in the United States and he marries 300 women in a year and he divorces none of them and none of them have died and yet he breaks no law. How, how does he do it? He's a clergyman. He marries women. Yeah, aha, right? He marries women. To, now, you certainly know that that's a legitimate use of the word marry, right? To make two people into spouses, but yeah. that is not the obvious one that you, that comes up first. You see, in, in sort of a normal state of consciousness, your default mode of cognition, you go to what is obvious and what is. And see, what I'm trying as a cognitive scientist to explain is why do you find things obvious? Why do you find them salient? You start from there, as, and we all start from there as people. But as a scientist, I want to explain how does your brain make that for you? And 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 more pertinent to your point is how does your brain determine when that's wrong? Right, and so. You're locked on, oh, Mary means to become a spouse. Oh, how can that be? How can that be? But if I alter your state of consciousness and if I get you to alter what you're paying attention to, right, and those are often very closely connected by giving you a different kind of framing, putting you, for example, into a narrative interactive framing rather than a a straight problem-solving framing. So if I shift your framing and alter your state of consciousness, I can alter what you're finding obvious and salient and then that can reveal what you need to see you can oh right mary also makes the means to make people into spouses rather than becoming a spouse and so that's why if you if you you know if you get you you, you know you, you've got to do this right you have to test and work out the psychotechnologic the psychotechnologies that will change cognition and consciousness but what if they do that that's how i can drive the insight 
Yeah, that's great. I never thought of riddles as a psychotechnology <clears throat> to help us uh, <laughs> come to new insights, and and it's kind of like altering our our state of consciousness because we're we're seeing things from differently, and we're kind of forced into that by yeah, solving yeah. the riddle. We can only solve it when we shift our perspective and and framing, like you said. Yeah, I, I mean, I think insight is a sort of micro altering in your state of consciousness that's why we have this phenomenological we have this sort of opening sense and you have this flash sense and like i say when you start to get that extended in a cascade of insights in something like that is definitely you lose you know you lose you lose auto you lose that autobiographical narrative sense of self you have tremendous sense of that one minute right it's got this paradoxical quality in that you know that you're exerting lots of metaphor metabolic energy expenditure but nevertheless it feels effortless and graceful it already has a lot of properties of more you know more explicit mystical states and so already i think uh, this is what i'm saying there's a continuity between mystical states right and then flow states which are already i think clearly alternative states of consciousness, mindfulness, which is an alternate state of consciousness, and even the little flash of an altered state of consciousness that's going on in insight. And Tobolinsky and Reber argue for something sort of uh, very similar to that idea um, in, one of, in one of their papers. Mm. When you're talking about the um, spending of metabolic energy as being part of it, that was something that I was thinking about too um, in looking at my own meaningful experiences there's always the element of paying attention. Like mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm invested in mm -hmm. the exchange or the experience in some way. And it seems to me that it's essential that meaningful experiences have to be reciprocal. Like we have to be giving something in order to receive as well. Oh, oh, totally. I mean, I mean, that is one, in fact, that's one of the features that you need in order for even to induce the flow state. Uh, there has to be a tight coupling between me and the environment. I do things and then the environment responds and they, and they make sense. They're highly relevant to each other, right? Such that, for example, error is really costly and I'll fall out of the flow state if, if I, if, if I, if, if I generate a uh, significant error. Um, yeah, and paying attention, I think, is really crucial. But you're right, it's paying attention in a particular way. Um, I talk about this in the series, right? I mean, there's, there's and, and, and Anna Langer made, I mean, there's hard focus where you just focus on the item, right? And, and, and then there's soft vigilance, like when you, where instead of just saying focus, 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 I say, notice the shape of the glass, it's narrow at the bottom, it's wider at the top, there's this squiggly thing in between, oh, that reminds you of Charlie Brown, right? And now you can pay attention much longer. And not only that, that what's called soft vigilance, you are already getting yourself to shift around, alter what you find interesting, inter-essay, to be within something, right? You're, you're, what you're finding interesting, you're, you're using your attention to alter what you find salient, what you find relevant, what you find important, because you're doing this exploratory uh, so I would I would suggest to you, and I think this is probably the case because I mean I do yoga, I do tai chi chuan. That you don't have that hard focused on your body. You have that because you talked about curiosity. You have this exploratory, investigatory, not theorizing. You're not theorizing, mm -hmm. but you're doing something with your attention, like what I was directing you to do with the glass. You're trying mm -hmm. to open up the phenomena. You're you're actually trying to afford its expression to you as you are exploring it. So there's this tight coupling between your exploration of it and its, its expression to you. Yeah, no, that really rings true to me. In, um, in Patanjali, 
he, in his uh, outlining of the method of Ashtanga Yoga, the stage is related to meditation leading to samadhi. The first stage is focusing your concentration on an object. Mm -hmm. The second stage, dhyana, is when there starts that this interchange yeah. starts to happen and you're receiving information as you're projecting your attention. Yeah. Yeah. So exactly what you talked about. Like, that's a great word. There, a coupling happens. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And we start to gain uh, new, new information or insight about the object. Yeah, I think that's why there's so many wisdom traditions. I mean, Hebrew's famous for this, that use sexual intercourse metaphors for wisdom. Right. Can that, you give an example of that? <laughs> uh, 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 what's the word in Hebrew? I, I, I think it's, uh, oh, I can't remember. Okay, but you'll know, if you read the King James Version of the Bible, it'll still come cl clear. So if you're reading the Old Testament, you'll, you'll Adam knew Eve, and then they had Cain and Abel. So the word in English is new, because it's a Hebrew word for know, but Adam's knowing Eve produces their son, because it's also the word, that, that word for knowing right? A kind of knowing and wisdom, right? It is relayed, it is also the word for sexual intercourse, right? Hmm. So you, 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 you and, and, and by the way, that's how you can, that's, I mean, Aaron's work shows that that's how you sort of induce love. I mean, you should have mutually accelerating, you know, um, um, what's he called it? I can't remember the exact phrase he has, but the idea here is you and like you and your partner, you sort of open yourself up you just mutually accelerating disclosure and you disclose and then they disclose and then you disclose more and they just, and as long as you've got that reciprocal realization going, you fall in love. And that's, I mean, that's how you get that. And then, so the, the connections between love and, you know, sexual intercourse and this kind of participatory knowing, yeah, these are, these, the metaphors for this are, are, are across the tradition, or I'll give you another example. The whole tantric tradition is about linking Right, these mindfulness transform transformations of consciousness and cognition to sexual intercourse and union, right? Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of like those first stages of uh, getting to know someone when yeah. all you're doing is like pouring out your stories to each other. Yeah, yeah. There's so much like juiciness in that, and it's like once you've exhausted the stories, that that goes to a trickle, and that's where the real work of maintaining yeah. a strong connection comes in. Um, yeah. So you have to move to. I mean, you have to move to the other orders. You can't rely on the narrative, right? You have to. You have to move to the. You know, to the nomological and the normative orders. You have to really get at. Okay, how are you growing as a person? How are you self-transcending? How can I afford that? And how can your path afford my path of growth? And so you've got to. You've got to move to. You got to move off the narrative onto onto the normative and also onto the nomological. How are you making more sense about the world? Like, wh what is the world meaning to you? Well, how is it meaning to me? How can we coordinate these together so they're also doing reciprocal realization? The reciprocal realization doesn't have to die. You just have to move to, you know, like to, if I can use a metaphor, you have to move off the horizontal narrative and onto the vertical, you know, uh, uh, nor normative and, and pneumological. Like, how are we connecting to reality, right? And how are we connecting to our own better selves? And how is that deeply connected to how we are connected? So, I mean, I, I'm very fortunate to be with somebody who, who, who uh, we, we, we have this kind of uh, relationship. And yeah, and we're like, we're like, you know, more than four years in and, you know, you sort of know the, the person, like you said, you know the stories, but um, uh, we have moved to like to those other orders in, uh, I think, a very healthy and, and for me and, and for her, a very happy fashion. So, uh, 
Yeah, no, I think that's really great. I never thought about that before, but you're right. It does move into this uh, verticality where we're looking at, um, yeah, beyond the narrative into the deeper meaning of our life and sharing that. And it makes me think about, you know, being a yoga teacher, you know, uh, on a retreat, often get women coming on their own and they might be married, but their husband's at home watching football on the couch and they become what I think of, you know, as spiritual widows in some way. It's yes, like they're yes. getting, they're getting interested in the verticality yeah. of life. Like what is, what's the meaning of life? What's, what's my purpose? There's something more to life than, than this, than football and 2.5% beer. And the partner isn't so interested in that. So yeah, they're not meeting them. They're not on that vertical journey together. And that's where they can, uh, the, yeah. the relationship I, I, can fall apart. I think that's exactly right. Fortunately, uh, my partner, she's an excellent practitioner of yoga. And she and I had done a bit before because I did it sporadically in conjunction with doing Tai Chi and uh, Qigong and you know, the, the past and met and things like that. Uh, but she got me intensely interested in it. And that's, so it's something we share and do to do together. Um, and, and we talk about, and there's other, other practices we're, uh, we're, we're sort of starting to do together. We've also, we, we also spend a lot of time, um, developing conversational styles that are about this vertical dimension and really, and really practicing them with each other in, in the good sense of the word practice. Mm. Um, yeah, I find uh, my wife and I, because we both have our individual yoga practices, my wife's also an astrologer, so she's yeah. looking at the world through that lens. Sure, sure. We we'll often meet in the kitchen and we end up sitting on the kitchen floor having these, you know, conversations about the insights that we've come to. We mm-hmm. call them the kitchen floor conversations that can go like, you know, dinner is getting cold on the stove while, yeah, we're, yeah. while we're into this dialogue where we're just both deeply engaged in. There you go. And through telling, talking about the insight, um, it, it's a way to integrate it for me. Yeah. Um, and I find that incredibly useful to have someone to talk to about. Oh, I mean, this is the original platonic or even Socratic insight that if you like the insights you have on your own are dwarfed by the insights you have in dialogue with other people. I mean, mm-hmm. I, 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 that is one of the deep lessons that I took from Plato and that that has stayed with me. That's why I, I, I don't have I ever published anything on my own. I mean, I've given conference talks on my own, obviously, but whenever I publish and usually for the conference talks as well. I work with other people. It's just what I think it's just way, way better. Um, it has been for me. And so I, I totally get what you're talking about. I mean, I think the problem is we don't have a good word for this. I mean, I mean, the word we can use is friendship, but you know, we have this fuzzy meaning of friendship in our culture. It can be any, anywhere from, you know, somebody is your soulmate to somebody's your, your drinking buddy. Right. And, and, um, and you alluded to that a few minutes ago. Um, but I think, you know, if we understand, you know, friendship in this deep sense, the way Aristotle and Plato, especially Aristotle talked about it, then what you and your wife and me and my partner are doing is we're cultivating, you know, this deep friendship love. Again, don't trivialize it and don't make it superficial. This is a deep and profound kind of love. Right. And it tends to replace the sort of more narratively driven uh, kind of thing. Yeah, the poet and ritualist uh, John O'Donohue talks about the anamkara, which is, I think, a Celtic word, which means soul friend. Yeah, that's a good term. That's a great term. 
Um, soulmate should have that connotation, but people have lost the sense of mate as you know friendship um, and think of it more as a, a, a sexual term. Um, and so it, that that unfortunately it gets lost when when people talk about soulmate. But soul yeah, friend is yeah. soul friend is a really good term actually. I know. Yeah, there's a great he does a great piece on on Amkara and. Um, describes what the soul friend is and uh yeah it just helped uh kind of click things into perspective because often when i'm teaching yoga i i you know i kind of i like to subvert hierarchies and so i don't want to see the people i'm teaching yoga to as my clients or my students necessarily but you know i like to see myself as a helpful friend who's learned some things that have been good for me that i just want to share yeah a Um, good a good teacher always shares their learning rather than their knowledge. Uh, uh, that's, that's also, as a teacher, that's one of the things that's central to my pedagogy. I share my learning rather than sharing my knowledge with my students. Yeah, and like that learning is always... Uh, always evolving. ongoing, exactly. Always evolving, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And then like in the sharing of it, often that's when new insights come in. And totally. I find myself you, even yeah, finding that, like finding myself in a flow state when I'm engaged in, uh, in yep, teaching. Totally. Totally. I, I have the same thing when I'm teaching both when I'm teaching academically and when I'm teaching Tai Chi or meditation, I know exactly what you're talking about. And, and you know, and that's part like when, so when we're done, yes, the students salute me, but they also salute the senior students and they also salute, salute each other. Cause I try to say, you're not just learning from me. You're also learning from a senior student and you should also be learning from each other throughout the entire time. Hmm. Yeah, my, my teacher would say that uh, there's always three elements involved. It's the teacher, the student, and the teaching. Yes, the teaching. And, and I, and and, I tell and it's that, that, that interchange, that exchange, which is the teaching. It's not just the one-way um, exactly, exactly. Yeah, projection of, of uh, information, but it's in the exchange. That's the teaching. And I yeah. like that, you know, going back to um, – what we talked about in terms of that reciprocal engagement, the yeah, res- reciprocal realization, the, yeah, the, the coupling, like you yeah, said. the coupling, yeah, totally, yeah, and and again, that 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 makes that experience deeply meaningful book for both participants. Um, yeah, I think that's important, um, and that's one of the pieces of advice I give to my students when, like, um, if because I'm teaching at the university, right, that if they're going to move on and they're looking for a place, I, I say look for a place that emphasizes the teaching, not the teacher, and that the teaching has that sort of reciprocal participatory feel to it. Um, because that's a, re- I mean, it's, there's no fail-safe rules. They don't exist. But that's a very good heuristic rule for trying to get away from, you know, abusive and exploitative situations. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so going back to what, what caused you to put together this lecture series, mm-hmm. Um, and it got me thinking about, you know, the current state of our Western culture and like what's going on and what I see yeah. as, as symptoms of a lack of meaning and purpose in life. Yep, yeah. Many people are coming to this conclusion independently, convergently. Yeah. So what have you identified as the symptoms of a lack of meaning in our culture? Um, so some of the symptoms are, you know, uh, there's increasing... Um, aspects of loneliness, um, mental health crisis, uh, addiction crisis, the, the opioid crisis. Um, you have that uh, while worldwide suicide is declining, it's on the increase as are anxiety and depressive disorders amongst young young adults, t- 
teenagers and adults. You have increasing disenfranchisement from established religious institutions, also from social clubs and institutions. Um, and you've so you got this fragmentation going on. Um, people feel more fragmented in their individual lives. Yeah, you've got the this weird, um, this weird, it's almost a paradox. Everything is being politicized sort of voraciously, while at the same time people are losing faith and becoming disenfranchised from any political process. So they're not joining political parties, they're not voting, they have, they're deeply cynical about all politicians, all political processes. And so you've got to, and that makes sense together if there's, there's a crisis that they, they want this to be working and it's not. Uh, we've got the degeneration of our political and democratic discourse from what I would call it, what used to be opponent processing, your body makes use of opponent processing, like the relationship between your sympathetic and parasympathetic system. These are, these are systems that work for opponent goals, right? But they, they work together to give you an overall adaptive response to the government, to the environment. And governments used to understand this, that the, the, that the opposition was opponent processing. It's, it's to make the overall process of democracy self-correcting. And that has broken down into adversarial winner-take-all. This is a point that my friend Leo Ferraro and I talk about a lot, and he, he really ha has helped me develop it in, in important ways. And, and I owe a lot to Leo about this for this point. And so, right, it's like, you know, that's another symptom of it. Um, you have the increasing um, pervasive sense, we track this in the book, that we're, and I'm using this term in a technical sense, the way Frankfurt uses it, that there's more and more bullshit in our lives. Bullshit is everywhere and it's becoming pervasive, overwhelming. People often feel like they're drowning in it, such that you have the default stance that people are increasingly taking is one of a very, um, I, I want to say superficial in the sense that it's not sort of deeply philosophically argued, but it's, a, it's, an, it's an enacted cynicism and nihilism. Um, that's a default position. I think on the other hand, you see other symptoms, uh, like I think the mindfulness revolution is a response. People are, are trying to get something to address this meaning crisis. Uh, you see uh, the beginnings of replacements for the lost institutions. So many people... I point to you, myself, we, you know, we, well, you go to church? Of course not. Where do you go on Sunday morning? Well, I go to the yoga studio and I get together with a bunch of human beings and we do this whole ritual together to alter a state of consciousness, right? And what, well, you know, that's kind of what religions used to do for us, right? And so, yeah, I'm not going to say you're religious by doing that, but what I'm saying is this is trying to take a role or, or perform a function that people feel that has been lost in the culture in general. Right, the, the growing confluence between cognitive science and Buddhism, even academically and scientifically, I think is a symptom of it. The whole zombie mythology, why we have had just this spike in, in zombies um, in, you know, in our culture, and, and, and people even enact, they go in zombie walks. We talked about this in the book a lot. And the zombie is clearly a symbol of the meaning crisis, right? They, they, they lack intelligibility. They lack the capacity for make, me, making meaning. They consume voraciously, but they're never satisfied. They move with other people, but they don't have a community. They drift aimlessly with no narrative purpose. And the apocalypse that they bring about doesn't rejuvenate or renew the world. It just deadens the world into an empty, you know, 
void, an opening horizon of empty meaninglessness, right? They aren't supernatural. They're just us in decayed, ugly form. Like they, they, we feel like zombies sometimes when we're shuffling down the streets and there's people around us and we've had an alienating day and which, you know, we're not connected and we're feeling that loneliness and we're feeling like, you know, the, the, everything's just very consumptive and competitive. I mean, and so I think the zombie mythology is a clear symptomatic expression of the meaning crisis. I, I think the attempts, um, uh, like I said, to to try and create, you know, ideological replacements for religious frameworks um, are, are symptomatic. I, I think they're problematic in that and, and in that trying to solve the meaning crisis on the level of propositional belief is the wrong place to solve it. So if you're trying to solve the meaning crisis by creating an ideology right, that you're going to use to defeat other ideologies, you're missing it because you're missing all of these embodied psychotechnological transformative processes that you and I have been talking about that you need to actually have in place to address the meaning crisis. And I think some of Stephen Batchelor's work on this, especially, you know, the books like uh, Alone with Others and Buddhism Without Beliefs point to exactly that argument. Uh, so I think, you know, against the rise of, you know, powerful ideological and, you know, often tending towards their symptomatic uh, expression of the meaning crisis. So mm -hmm. I, I think that's, that's what comes to mind right now. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack in there, but um, one thing I'm thinking about, you know, you pointed to people being drawn to uh, meditation centers and yoga yep. studios looking for something that's been lost in our culture. Mm -hmm. there, we uh, have no wisdom institutions. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, Speaking as a yoga teacher, a lot of the elements that make life meaningful aren't actually present in yoga studios. Like you talked about being in a crowd, but being isolated. And I think that's what often happens in these yoga studios. And it is still based on a, a consumer model where yes, yes, people, yes. Com people come in, they throw down their card, they un unroll their mat, they do their thing, and then they get up and leave. Right, And, and there isn't that communal interchange exchange that uh really i think is essential yeah, yeah. Um, so i think there are some things lacking in in you know how we're trying to find that again um i think yeah. I, I mean i mean so uh the place where i i mean for one thing i practice with my partner and so that makes it uh, more communal and she knows people there kind of thing um but i mean the degree to which you can bring in some chanting the degree to which you can bring in pranayama because breathing in sync together, right. And chanting together starts to bring in uh, this communal shared sense, of, you know, sense of presence that you've been talking about. Um, I think uh, what has to be brought in and this will be difficult, right. Is some of the more, the, the, the some of the more ancient ritual elements that went with yoga practice to give people again, a symbolic frame that they can all share together. I mean, you know, obviously, that has to be done carefully and reflectively. Uh, but yeah, I agree with you. I think um, I, I, I think that there's going to be more pressure uh, uh, on yoga uh, studios and such to uh, to do this. Um, I, I've been asked by one uh, branch of yoga studios to come and give talks about the science of mindfulness and, and these ideas because they, they again they want to share as a community how to deepen the practice. And I think the, the, I mean, 
we keep doing this, right? So yoga was misappropriated largely as sort of an exercise, right? And I think the ecology of mindfulness practices you find in Buddhism has been misappropriated as a single practice of siddhat meditation. That's not the Eightfold Path, right? It's not the Eightfold Path. There's The reason why right mindfulness or right meditation is in the Eightfold Path is because wrong mindfulness and wrong meditation are a real possibility for people, right? And so, you know, creating these, these ecology of practices that are about long-term transformation rather than just health. Um, mm. um, I, yeah, I, I personal well-being. And, yeah. and I think... Yeah, I'm. I'm not a Buddhist scholar or anything, but isn't there something about right action and yeah, totally, yeah, yeah. So, like the personal practice is for uh, having healthier engagement with the outside world and people. Yeah, I have that slogan when I'm teaching people the meditation. I I keep saying to them, I over and over again, meditation is not a vacation; it's an education. Right, Mm -hmm. you're not leaving your life to go on vacation for an hour. You are going to a place to learn more deeply how to live your life. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, you know, one of the things that I've been finding um, really nourishing for myself is bringing uh, shamanism into mm. a more regular context. You know, like I go down to the Amazon and visit ayahuasca shamans and right, right. all that, but that's not really accessible to a lot of people. No, nor, it's not. <laughs> nor, nor is it appropriate for a lot of yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't recommend that to a lot of people as a thing to start with. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so what I've actually been doing is uh, drumming circles where right. um, I'm drumming and people are going on a shamanic journey. I give them some very basic instruction. Um, so they're having that inward, you know, inward then outward mm. journey, but a, a crucial aspect of it that I've been finding like really incredible is the sharing circle after. Yes, yes, yes. And having that communal sharing around yep. the camp- campfire thing just feels um, just super nourishing and exactly what's needed right now. I've I've had the privilege of participating in a Sufi chant which is very similar. There's the drum, there's the intense drumming, there's the chanting, you sit in a circle. And then of course, afterwards there's dialogue. And so I, yeah, I think that's very, and that, that, that is very, that, that goes back to some of the core shamanic um, psychotechnologies, right? You've got the drumming, you usually have chanting, right. Uh, associated with it. And then you, you have the alt, the shared potentially reinforced uh, altered state of consciousness. And then you have some discussive framework around it that tries to, uh, you know, open it up, express it, articulate it, um, solidify it for people. Uh, yeah, I think that's good. Um, yeah. But go, go ahead. Well, those are like some possible solutions, like what we can bring into spaces that are already happening. Although I think it's really difficult in like a commercial yoga studio because, you know, in order to pay the rent in a place like Toronto or Vancouver, yep. you got to pack the people in and one class butts up to the next. So there's not really an yeah. opportunity to open up space for like that free flow of dialogue and sharing. Um, mm-hmm. So that's a problem. So I think maybe finding alternative spaces, which is what I've been doing a lot of um, trying to, yeah, find spaces where I, where I have a bit more leeway in terms of timing. I think we also need to, it, there's also the, the problem of overcoming, you know, the inertia of unfamiliarity. I think if we start to create either virtually or actual in situ uh, places that are ecology of practices. I was taught that. I was taught of a Vipassana, Metta, and Tai Chi together, um, right? Uh, and, and where people go in and we have sort of 
systematically vetted, practiced, understood sets of psychotechnologies like drumming, right? Like yoga, like a meditation, right? Like, you know, reflective practices, you know, and we, and we put them together into a mutually reinforcing, you know, each practice has its strengths and its weaknesses. We should put, we should reflectively, rationally, you know, put together sets of psychotechnologies that, you know, have, compensatory relationships to each other. They act as checks and balances on each other's strengths and weaknesses and offer that in a consistent, reliable fashion. I, 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 I predict that we will be able to find a market for that. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm fine. As I put these things together, you know, my wife and I do these nights where, um, I'll do, uh, I'll lead people through a, a simple yoga practice, some simple breath and movement, <clears throat> very much like a Qigong or Tai Chi. Mm. And then we'll do uh, a sound journey where people are lying down and going inward. And mm. then we've got that interpersonal aspect of the sharing circle. And for me, um, that's just, you know, my interest putting them all together you know, I, I was with a teacher once and she's a singing teacher, but she learned a little bit about me in the week I was with her. And she said, you know what? It's yoga, music, and shamanism are all one. And that's your job. That's your dharma is to bring those things together. Yeah. And what, what I found is that they're all, like you said, complementary of each other. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so just, you know, more and more, more and more trying to bring those together in, into spaces and kind of experimenting and seeing if there's interest for that. And I'm finding as I bring those things together, I'm getting a lot more interest than when I just offer something like a yoga course. Yep. I think that, like I said, I think that's, that's what people are hungering for. They're hungering for wisdom. They're not just hungering for an exercise or a practice to improve this aspect of health um, or give them relaxation for a while. At least a significant number of people, I think, are being motivated by the meaning crisis. I would add one more element to it, um, uh, and which is I think we should, we are in the place now where there is much more serious and good scientific investigation of a lot of these psychotechnologies and practices, and they should also become part of the process by which we vet and select uh, the psychotechnologies. So, of course, we should pay attention to traditional history, but like the course, we should not only pay attention to the history, we should pay attention to the science as we're trying to under... So I do a lot of scientific work right mm -hmm. on you know what's happening in mindfulness what's happening in these mystical experiences what's happening with attention and trying to get because you know if we get a better scientific understanding then of course we can optimize we can optimize uh, these psychotechnologies like we've always done when we get a better scientific understanding of what's going on in them yeah this kind of leads to something i wanted to ask you about um so seeing this like incredible uh burst of popularity in these YouTube lectures with people like yourself and Jordan Peterson and Sam mm -hmm. Harris, obviously there's a lot of people are really hungry for, yeah, hungry. for, for meaning and meaningful uh, yeah. conversations. Although I'm like, I guess I'm wondering if it just seems like it's maybe all a bit too intellectual and there's not enough practice in, in all of that. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if it's just feeding this kind of, Western tendency to want to accumulate information, uh, confuse, it, confuse it with knowledge and get stuck there. Okay, so I mean, I, I have, I think, a principled response. First of all, in my life, as I've mentioned to you, I not only do the academic work, I teach 
teach the Tai Chi and the inhalation. I also ran an evening wisdom sangha trying to create you know, ecologies of practices for about five or six years at the University of Toronto. I had to stop just because of scheduling reasons. I, you know, I had a child and <laughs> um, um, things like that. But so I am committed to that. In fact, that's very important. And part of the argument, all I can do on a video series is make an argument, right? I'll make one qualification for that in a sec. And what I'm trying to do is make an argument for the, the difference between wisdom and knowledge and make a, a developed argument as we've been doing here today for these perspectival and participatory aspects of knowing that are not captured just by putting things into propositional statements. So that's part of the core thrust of the theory, the, the series. And that's, that's part of the core theory of it. I also have made videos that I've released and I'm going to make a set of videos in like at the end of the series about like how to meditate, you know, how to contemplate, you know, maybe here's a, you know, a basic kind of movement practice you can do. What would it be to invoke some of the stoic psychotechnologies, some of the neoplatonic psychotechnologies? Like how do we bring these together? So there, I have some of those already out there. There's a, there's like five videos on practice man, I'm going to do that in. I'm also going to bring in dialogue with people on the meaning crisis who are practitioners, like a Jungian psychotherapist, have a dialogue with them, see what's the relationship between that kind of practice. Uh, you know, bring in ideas about how you might want to bring in something that you alluded to earlier. I mean, there's a lot of good scientific work and, you know, and some very good um, uh, work on there's a lot of trash but there's also some very good work on you know inducing lucid dreaming and getting you know getting that that to be a very powerful way for people like to explore depths of the psyche uh, of the psyche i think wagoner's book on it is really good um and, and especially what you get to is you know you people move through stages where initially they're really focused on the content of the lucid world. But eventually what they do is they instead want not to focus on the content. They want to get to the source of the process that's generating all the insight and the wisdom. They want to travel towards the source of the insight of the wisdom rather than just getting enmeshed like in, in that world. And that can be a, a deeply transformative thing. So, you know, there's psychodynamic psycho, uh, uh, psychotechnologies that have, I think, scientific legitimacy. We have experimental evidence that if I induce science, lucid dreaming in you, uh, it makes you more insightful in your waking life. So again, uh, you know, there's a lot of work being done and there's, I want to talk to people about uh, those things too at the end. Now I can't teach people via, I mean, I can, I can teach them sort of basic, but we, I can't be in person teaching. But what I hope to do is give people a taste for the practices and the psychotechnology, both by presenting some initial things they can do, and some initial people that exemplify the kind of people they might meet so that they are afforded and facilitated with going out and trying to um, meet the people and find the sets of practices that they need to engage in. That's great. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you in particular on the podcast is because what I saw was that you're bringing the, um, the, the science, the kind of the the technologies and also I think the art of it all, yes, um, like yeah. the met, the metaphor and all that, yeah, bringing yeah. all that together, which is something that I've been seeing lacking and kind of, you know, a bit worrisome, like Jordan Peterson's getting so popular. Sam Harris is getting so popular and it's like, feels very heady to me, like very mm -hmm. like intellectual. And I think that's already a, a tendency in the Western mind mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. want to, you know, 
consume information just like we consume everything else. And so I'm really happy that it's, it seems like, you know, you seem very passionate about bringing the practices into it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly talking about them already in this series. Yeah, but I'm, I think maybe that's in response to you seeing the same thing. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of it is, I mean, Jordan and I are colleagues uh, at the University of Toronto, and part of it is um, we come from a different orientation. I mean, the set of practices that Jordan is relying on, I think, are the what I would call the psychotechnologies, right? The systematic set of, you know, skills that, uh, and sensibilities that are being trained. Um, I mean, it's, it's largely in, in a Jungian framework, right? So his science is personality theory and, and his, um, his set of psychotechnologies is Jungian. Uh, the, the thing that Jordan typically doesn't do is talk about some of those psychotechnological practices, like what is it to do dream work? What is it to do active imagination? Uh, what is it to engage in, you know, a, 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 an appropriate uh, a dialogue uh, with somebody else that's trying to, you know, so that, that yeah, that's missing. Now, I can and, and, and go ahead. He embodied practices, too. Yeah, totally, like, totally, totally. Breathing and moving. Yeah, well, that's what I was just going to say. I come from a different framework. I mean, I I, I went through Jungian therapy, and, and and I like I mean as 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 a patient, and, and I I did a whole host of workshops because I really wanted to understand it. Right. So I'm not an expert like Jordan is, but I think I, it's fair to say I have a good educated understanding of it. Uh, but my background is as right. It's the the the, the Western Platonic philosophical tradition, and then you know. Taoist to Tai Chi and Qigong, right? You know, and then pranayama and yoga, right? And, 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 and all these other practices, like you said. And, and so, and then, and all, of course, the meditation and the contemplation, the, uh, you know, the reflection, the dialogue practices. And so I have, my framework is just much more embodied in its orientation. And my cognitive science I come. I'm an advocate of what's called third-generation cogsci, which emphasizes our embodiment and our 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 connectedness, our extension into the environment as fundamental uh, dimensions by which we're going to understand cognition and consciousness. So I'm just oriented that way much more than Jordan is. Sam Harris, I don't like. I don't know what to say about Sam Harris. I'm (laughs) I'm not a big fan uh, of of, of his style of argumentation and presentation of material. Um, But yeah, I would agree with you, at least on this, that he he is um, not getting into... He's, he, I don't want to be unfair to him, so I was perhaps a little harsh. I mean, he does talk about mindfulness, and it's important. I don't know, I haven't seen from him how that systematically fits into what he's doing in his podcast. Like, what's the connection between yeah. his practice and, 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 the, and the scientific frame? He, 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 he points to them being connected. There's not really integration there. That's right. That's my criticism. And, and, and like, and you... You 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 you're, you're reinforcing that. So many people have converged on that. Many people have shared that sort of same thing with me. It's how those pieces fit together um, uh, are missing. And and a lot of people come to my work after sort of well being in the Sam Harris fold, precisely because other than sort of having new beliefs, they don't know it, it's they're dead in the water. It's yeah. what, okay, what do I do? How do I, how does this transform my life? How does this make my life more meaningful? And then they find, oh, well, we, we've got to open up the discourse. We've got to talk a lot more about wisdom and a lot less about specific belief sets. 
That's great. And it's like, I think there needs to be someone there to receive people when they get to that stage of, okay, now what? Yeah. You know, you've, you've made me uh, conscious of all my problems and like, what's <laughs> wrong with the world? Now, what's my response to that? Yeah. Um, and I think the response is embodied practices, communal practices, all of those things, right? I agree with that. But I would add that those practices can't be uh, like sort of can't be ad hoc and they and they can't be just autodidactic. Right. Because that's very dangerous because that that's a, that's an arena. That's what social media does. Right. It just yeah. reinforces uh, bias and like in this ever accelerating thing. Those processes have to be set. I, I, I like Stevens. I met Stephen Baxter. So. Um, uh, I like Stephen's idea of a culture of awakening. The, the, the psychotechnologies have to be systematically related to each other, as we were talking about earlier, and they have to be set into a community yeah. of shared commitment and shared responsibility, right? So we have to create a culture around the practices that also, right, and one more move, and this is the move that the, theory, the series is also trying to address, that culture has to have an intellectually respectable worldview. It has to be able to integrate or at least respond in an intellectually respectable manner to the pervasive scientific worldview because that is, that is not going away. People who want nostalgically to somehow, well, somehow we'll get rid of the science, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. It's a part of the equation now for sure. Yeah, it's, and, it's, a, it's an irremovable part of the equation. Yeah. No, that's, that's really good. That's really good. I like all of those pieces, how they fit together. Um, that feels really whole and complete to me. Um, yeah. I feel like really complete. We covered a lot in this and I, I felt like um, we took, you know, the nine hours of the lecture series that I've watched so far. Um, I got to talk to you about all the different aspects that were jumping out to me and um, really able to clarify some of those ideas. Um, Great. So I think we did pretty good in an hour, oh. you know? <laughs> at least <laughs> well, for like, at least where my interest lies. So um, is there anything else that you wanted to say? Like what's coming up? For well, you? I feel well, I mean, uh, like we, we, we're, we've released the 10th video. We've, we've filmed 28 and the plan is for 50. So there's a, there's a ways to go on that. And then like I said, like, I want to do some, you know, uh, supplementary stuff on here's practices and then here's dialogue with people. So there's, there's a lot, there's a, uh, there's a lot coming. Um, and so I would invite people to uh, check out the series. Uh, they, they can follow me on Twitter if they want to, uh, to see where, where I'm giving other podcasts, talks. Um, and so I, I, you know, I want to be clear about this. I, I really, I really started this project because I care about, helping people address the meaning crisis. And, and so I really, right, it's important uh, to that. And this this is sort of hard for me to do by nature. I'm, I'm sort of by nature very quite socially phobic. It's a crazy thing for a teacher to be, right? Um, <laughs> and so I, I, I hesitated doing this for quite a while. Um, and so I want to express right now, and I keep doing it, but I wanna, I'm going to keep doing it. I want to express gratitude, like real genuine gratitude, for the support, the constructive criticism um, that I'm receiving from people, and 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 the opportunities like you've afforded me to dialogue about this and make it available and accessible to people, uh, thank you very much for that. Well, thanks a lot for your work. I think um, you're addressing the, the most important issues that we're facing right now. Um, so thanks a lot, and I, I look forward to following your work, man. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.